Hi listeners and readers, I hope that you are all keeping well. Thank you so much for stopping by. We are moving into chapter 8 of A Lost Lady by Willa Cather. Before I get started, I just wanted to remind everyone that I do read the full and unabridged texts of these books. And from time to time, we do encounter language, themes that are bigoted, racist, sexist. It's important to keep in mind the context of where these stories take place, when these stories take place, when they were written, and who wrote them. All right, let's get reading. Chapter 8 Neil met his uncle and Captain Forrester when they alighted from the morning train and drove over to the house with them. The business on which they had gone to Denver was not referred to until they were sitting with Mrs. Forrester in the open parlor. The windows were open and the perfume of the mock orange and of June roses was blowing in from the garden. Captain Forrester introduced the subject after slowly unfolding his handkerchief and wiping his forehead and his fleshy neck around his low collar. Mady, he said, not looking at her. I've come home a poor man. It took about everything there was to square up. You'll have this place unencumbered and my pension. That will be about all. The livestock will bring in something. Neil saw that Mrs. Forrester grew very pale, but she smiled and brought her husband his cigar stand. Oh, well, I expect we can manage, can't we? We can just manage, not much more. I'm afraid Judge Pomeroy considers I acted foolishly. Not at all, Mrs. Forrester, the judge exclaimed. He acted just as I hope I would have done in his place. But I am an unmarried man. There were certain securities, government bonds, which Captain Forster could have turned over to you, but it would have been at the expense of the depositors. I've known men to do that, said the captain heavily, but I never considered they paid their wives a compliment. If Mrs. Forrester is satisfied, I shall never regret my decision. For the first time, his tired, swollen eyes sought his wife's. I never question your decisions in business, Mr. Forrester. I know nothing about such things. The captain put down the cigar he had taken, but not lighted, rose with an effort, and walked over to the bay window where he stood gazing out over his meadows. 
The place looks very nice, matey, he said presently. I see you've watered the roses. They need it, this weather. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll lie down for a while. I did not sleep well on the train. Neil and the judge will stay for lunch. He opened the door into Mrs. Forrester's room and closed it behind him. Judge Pomeroy began to explain to Mrs. Forrester the situation they had faced in Denver. The bank, about which Mrs. Forrester knew nothing but its name, was one which paid good interest on small deposits. The depositors were wage earners, railroad employees, mechanics, and day laborers, many of whom had at some time worked for Captain Forrester. He was the only well-known name among, his was the only well-known name among the bank officers. It was the name which promised security and fair treatment to his old workmen and their friends. The other directors were promising young businessmen with many irons in the fire. But, the judge said with evident chagrin, they had refused to come up to the scratch and pay their losses like gentlemen. They claimed that the bank was insolvent, not through unwise investments or mismanagement, but because of a nationwide financial panic, a shrinking in values that no one could have foreseen. They argued that the fair thing was to share the loss with the depositors, to pay them 50 cents on the dollar, giving long-time notes for 25%, and settling on a basis of 75%. Captain Forrester had stood firm that not one of his depositors should lose a dollar. The promising young businessmen had listened to him respectfully, but finally told him that they would settle only on their own terms. Any additional refunding must be his affair. He sent to the vault for his private steel box, opened it in their presence, and sorted the contents on the table. The government bonds he turned in at once. Judge Pomeroy was sent out to sell the mining stocks and other securities in the open market. At this part of his narrative, the judge rose and began to pace the floor, twisting the seals on his watch chain. That was what a man of honor was bound to do, Mrs. Forrester. With five of the directors backing down, he had either to lose his name or save it. The depositors had put down their savings into that bank because Captain Forrester was president. To those men with no capital but their back in their two hands, his name meant safety. As he tried to explain to the directors, those deposits were above price. Money saved to buy a home or to take care of a man in sickness or to send a boy to school. And those young men, bright fellows, well thought of in the community, sat there and looked down their noses and let your husband strip himself down to pledging his life insurance. There was a crowd in the street outside the bank all day, every day. Poles and Swedes and Mexicans looking scared to death. A lot of them couldn't speak English. Seemed like the only English word they knew was Forrester. As we went in and out, we'd hear the Mexicans saying, Forrester, Forrester. 
It was a torment for me. On your account, ma'am, to see the captain strip himself. But, upon my honor, I couldn't forbid him. As for those white-livered rascals that sat there, the judge stopped before Mrs. Forrester and ruffled his bushy white hair with both hands. By God, madam, I think I've lived too long. In my day, the difference between a businessman and a scoundrel was bigger than the difference between a white man and a nigger. I wasn't the right one to go out there as the captain's counsel. One of these smooth members of the bar, like Ivy Peters is getting ready to be, might have saved something for you out of the wreck. But I couldn't use my influence with your husband. To that crowd, outside the bank doors, his name meant a hundred cents on the dollar. And by God, they got it. I'm proud of him, ma'am, proud of his acquaintance. It was the first time Neil had ever seen Mrs. Forrester flush. A quick pink swept over her face. Her eyes glistened with moisture. You were quite right, Judge. I wouldn't for the world have had him do otherwise for me. He would never hold up his head again. You see... I know him. As she said this, she looked at Neil on the other side of the room, and her glance was like a delicate and very dignified rebuke to some, discour- to some discourtesy, though he was not conscious of having shown her any. When their hostess went out to see about lunch, Judge Pomeroy turned to his nephew. Son, I'm glad you want to be an architect. I can't see any favorable or any honorable career for a lawyer in this new business world that's coming up. Leave the law to boys like Ivy Peters and get into some clean profession. I wasn't the right man to go with Forrester. He shook his head sadly. Will they really be poor? They'll be pinched. It's as he said. They've nothing left but this place. Mrs. Forrester returned and went to waken her husband for lunch. When she opened the door into her room, they heard stertorous breathing, and she called to them to come quickly. The captain was stretched upon his iron bed in the antechamber, and Mrs. Forrester was struggling to lift his head. Quick, Neil, she panted. We must get pillows under him. Bring those from my bed. Neil gently pushed her away. Sweat poured from his face as he got his strength under the captain's shoulders. It was like lifting a wounded elephant. Judge Pomeroy hurried back into the sitting room and telephoned Dr. Dennison that Captain Forrester had had a stroke. A stroke could not finish a man like Daniel Forrester. He was kept in his bed for three weeks, and Neil helped Mrs. Forrester and Ben Keyser take care of him. Although he was at the house so much during that time, he never saw Mrs. Forrester alone, scarcely saw her at all indeed. With so much to attend to, she became abstracted, almost impersonal. There were many letters to answer, gifts of fruit and wine and flowers to be acknowledged. Solicitous inquiries came from friends scattered all the way from the Missouri to the mountains. 
when Mrs. Forrester was not in the captain's room or in the kitchen preparing special foods for him, she was at her desk. One morning, while she was seated there, a distinguished visitor arrived. Neil, waiting by the door for the letters he was to take to the post, saw a large, red-whiskered man in a rumpled pongee suit and a Panama hat come climbing up the hill. Cyrus Dalzell, president of the Colorado and Utah, who had come over in his private car to inquire for the health of his old friend. Neil warned Mrs. Forrester, and she went to meet the visitor, just as he had mounted the steps, wiping his face with a red silk bandana. He took both the lady's hands and exclaimed in a warm, deep voice, Here she is, looking as fresh as a bride. May I claim an old privilege? He bent his head and kissed her. I won't be in your way, Marion, he said as they came into the house, but I had to see for myself how he does and how you do. Mr. Dalzell shook hands with Neil, and as he talked, he moved about the parlor clumsily and softly, like a brown bear. Mrs. Forrester stopped him to straighten his flowing yellow tie and pull down the back of his wrinkled coat. It's easy to see that Kitty wasn't with you this morning when you dressed, she laughed. Thank you, thank you, my dear. I've got a green porter down there, and he doesn't seem to realize the extent of his duties. No, Kitty wanted to come, but we have two giddy nieces out from Portsmouth visiting us, and she felt she couldn't. I just had my car hitched on to the tail of the Burlington Flyer and came myself. Now tell me about Daniel. Was it a stroke? Mrs. Forrester sat down on the sofa beside him and told him about her husband's illness, while he interrupted with sympathetic questions and comments, taking her hand between his large, soft palms and patting it affectionately. And now I can go home and tell Kitty that he will soon be as good as ever and that you look like you were going to lead the ball tonight. You whisper to Daniel that I've got a couple cases of port down in my car that will build him up faster than anything the doctors give him. And I've brought along a dozen sherry for a lady who knows a thing or two about wines. And next winter, you are both coming out to stay with us at the springs for a change of air. Mrs. Forrester shook her head gently. Oh, that, I'm afraid, is a pretty dream. But we'll dream it anyway. Everything about her had brightened since Cyrus Dalzell came up the hill. Even the long garnet earrings beside her cheeks seemed to flash with a deeper color, Neil thought. She was a different woman from the one who had sat there writing half an hour ago. Her fingers, as they played on the sleeve of the pongee coat, were light and fluttery as butterfly wings. No dream at all, my dear. Kitty has arranged everything. 
you know how quickly she thinks things out. I am to come for you in my car. We'll get my old porter, Jim, as a valet for Daniel, and you can just play around and put fresh life into us all. We saw last winter that we couldn't do anything without our Lady Forester. Nothing came off right without her. If we had a party, we sat down afterward and wondered what in hell we'd had it for. Oh, no, we can't manage without you. Tears flashed into her eyes. That's very dear of you. It's sweet to be remembered when one is away. In her voice, there was the heartbreaking sweetness one sometimes hears in lovely, gentle old songs.